Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games interview side series on the people and processes behind the game's history. I'm Richard Moss, and this time around I speak to Sam Dyer, a graphic designer who's made something of a name for himself with his retro gaming book publishing company, Bitmap Books. You might have seen Bitmap's work in posts about their visual compendiums, or the art of point-and-click adventure games, or in the recent games that weren't, and like me you might even have a number of their books sitting on your shelves or coffee table. Bitmap makes some of the best retro gaming books around, and Sam's the one-man operation behind them all. He handles the design, logistics, project management, marketing, book procurement, and nearly everything else, except for the writing. In the interview you're about to hear, which was recorded on November 24th, 2020, Sam and I talk deeply about the hows and whys of publishing visually-led books about video game history, including why he loves to publish them and why they are just so much more than mere picture books. We also discuss the challenges and processes of book publishing, the history of Bitmap, and Bitmap's current and upcoming projects. Now, without further ado, here's our full discussion, trimmed down, edited, and just generally tidied up to make the conversation a little easier on the ears. Enjoy. Now, to to start us off, I want to go back a bit. So you are a a graphic designer by trade and by training, and you'd been doing that, I believe, for, for quite a while when you started Bitmap Books in 2014. So can you talk a bit about the beginnings of the company, why you, why you started it, how you started it, that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. So just to sort of rewind a little bit from when I started Bitmap Books, which was actually in 2014. Uh, as you say, I was a, I've been a graphic designer since professionally since 2004 and worked at various agencies in, in London and then more recently in Bath. And just started getting a little bit uninspired, really, from doing day-to-day graphic design, working for clients that, you know, I don't want to sound ungrateful because obviously, you know, it was sort of a good job, but, you know, things that I'm not necessarily interested in, like law firms and construction companies. And I always sort of craved designing things that, you know, that I was more into and that I could feel like I could really make a difference um, and feel inspired. And I saw uh, uh, some other sort of companies producing retro books um, around about sort of 2013 and thought that I would could do something like that. And you know, I had no idea there was even a market for such books. And at the time, I was heavily back into sort of retro gaming and all that sort of stuff. And that's where it really started. And I started to ask around if... You know, if I did a book, say, on the Commodore 64, would there be any interest? And there was a really positive um, in, like, level of interest from the, from the community at the time. And it really just sort of snowballed from there. I started playing around with some, with, with some designs uh, for, for my first book, which was Commodore 64, a visual compendium. Shared them online, and the response, again, was really, really positive. And... Yeah, that's really how it started and then launched that first book on Kickstarter and it just sort of exploded from there. Mm. Yeah, you you nearly doubled your goal, I think, uh, with that first one, which m- must have been an amazing feeling for you. 
it it was and you know I probably shouldn't admit this but I didn't really have a clue what I was doing you know I just sort of <laughs> used crowdfunding and I mean the one thing I could always know was that I could deliver a book because obviously with my graphic design training and my sort of marketing background I knew that I could deliver that part of the project it was really around the finances and really making sure I'd captured all the costs correctly so it's a case of you know double checking it and really just hoping that I got it all right and yeah as you said it sort of doubled the goal of what we're expecting and the the response was fantastic and I think we got about a thousand backers at the time and that was just amazing to just have that level of support and it wasn't just the support it was the the encouragement as well that people really really wanted this book there hadn't been anything else like it on the Commodore 64 and the sort of memories and the passion that it evoked from the backers was really powerful and something that I hadn't really anticipated Mm. yeah and and then you got that uh on, on an even greater level with the the second book the the Amiga one which is done in the same style and you raised like uh, five times your goal, which was incredible. You had a huge number of backers, huge amount of support and, and uh, lots of enthusiasm for that, as I recall. Yes, yeah, so this is when things started really sort of taking off and that, that level of support for the Amiga book was completely unexpected. I mean, I expected there to be a growth in the amount of backers, but to raise, I think it was about 115,000, I think that book raised, which is just insane. And I, as I said, I didn't expect it. And it was, that was the first point where I thought, wow, you know, I've actually got something here, um, something pretty special with Bitmap Books and what I'm, mm. what I'm doing. It was all really positive. The only sort of, it's not a negative, but it did at the time, Bitmap Books was very much a hobby. As I said earlier, it was my sort of geeky thing to do in the evenings, um, using my graphic design and do, doing something fun. And it starts when you sort of raise that sort of level of money, there's obviously the expectation increases, the pressure increases, and it started. Not that it wasn't a hobby, but you know, it becomes more than just a sort of a play thing, I guess. Um, you need to start t- taking it very seriously. So that was kind of a bit of a shift that happened at that point. Yeah, and I, I don't know to what extent you felt this, but uh, I, I've sort of felt it myself, and, and I know that it's a really common feeling that once you have a lot of people who've put in money to support you in a crowdfunding campaign, you sort of you feel responsible for for doing a really good job because there are these actual people that you know have already put their money down, they're excited about this thing, and oh shit, now I've got to do a good job on it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, especially when you've got yeah 2,000 people <laughs> saying, I can't wait for this book, I can't wait for this book. There is, there is quite a lot of pressure. I think, I think, again, going back to my day job of being a graphic designer, I'm kind of, kind of quite used to deadlines and delivering um, work for clients. So I think that all, again, really helped me with that side of things, that it, it 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 wasn't um it wasn't like a new thing for me i suppose having to be under pressure and deliver something that ultimately you know someone's paid money for and it has to do a job but yeah that definitely is a factor that yeah does sort of play on your mind sometimes for sure 
Yeah, it's because it's like you know, I'm not just doing something for some uh, vague entity, some corporation. I've now got a thousand, two thousand people who uh, each individually have put forward some of their hard-earned money to support my vision for this project, and now it's not only my vision because now I've got to share this thing with them and they've got their expectations and I need to meet their expectations while also staying true to what I wanted to do. Yeah. And also one of the, one of the actual bigger pressures I'd say, rather than the fact that they're just, they've paid for something they, and, and obviously we've got to deliver what they've paid for. It's really around the expectation, I think. And some of the, some of the people say, oh, you know, oh, I'm so looking forward to this book because and it could be a, a wide range of, of reasons, but they've put down the harder money because, you know, they 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 remember, for instance, the Commodore 64 or the Amiga from when they were a child. And it this book is going to bring back powerful memories for them. Or, you know, a member of their family might have I've heard stories of a member of families passed away and you know, they used to play video games with that person. And the book, it's just, it's just so much more than a book to some people. Mm. And I think that's really where I think, well, I think one, that's how books are so amazing that they can evoke that sort of emotion. Um, and, you know, of course, they're such a keepsake. But that does add a layer of expectation and pressure for me more than delivering against mm. like anything sort of financial really is really living, yeah. you know, I suppose living up to people's expectations. Um, they, because when they see a project, yeah. Connection. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, it is very hard to stay true to your sort of my vision whilst also trying to sort of please everyone. But I think ultimately, it's really impossible to please everyone. So you've got to kind of obviously listen to what people want, but ultimately sort of stick to your um, belief on what you think's right. And yeah, I think that's kind of the, the right way I've, I've sort of always done it. And now, so then after the Amiga book, you, you kept going, you kept doing more books and, and you're really building up steam. You did the, the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo books and that and they were huge hits as well. And, how did you handle this um, really rapid growth over two, three years? I think at the time, it did. It obviously felt like growth, but it didn't feel. Um, I was I was always very careful to manage the growth mm. because at the time I still had a full time job, so this was still being done in the evenings and the weekends. Believe it or not, so I was sort of putting the brakes on at times when I felt like it was getting a bit too much be able to handle for me around family and work and everything and I think it's hard to explain about how I sort of managed it I think I just sort of it just feels like I sort of just went with the flow really as I said <laughs> I sort of went with the flow and and enjoyed it on on the sort of a, the crest of a wave really I think one way that I probably dealt with the growth from a pure workload sense was to start working with different designers and you know different freelancers as and when just to sort of help me out with various various aspects of of the design or the writing and all that sort of stuff yeah that was definitely one way of 
handling the growth and obviously getting like a proper accountant and stuff like that. So like more practical <laughs> things around a company when it starts getting more serious. Yeah, trying to trying to run an actual business is is very different than than doing a little side hobby thing. Yeah, and I and I'd never run a business before, so this was completely, you know, I I never started Bitmap Books to become a publishing company. It was really because Kickstarter wanted me to um, give a bank account where the money would go if if the project was funded on the first book. And it was just a fun thing that I did, you know, came up with the name and um, created this company. So the finances would be would be separate from my personal income for tax reasons. So it was never really my intention to create this thing. And it's just sort of happened. I mean, obviously, I've influenced it, but yeah, it has just kind of happened. And I've had to learn all the um, the joys of running a business and and also running a publishing company as well because that brings its own challenges in the sense that obviously publishing as you'll know Richard is a, is, is a really sort of old-fashioned industry and there's a mm. lot of old and stuffy ways of doing business <laughs> within publishing that haven't moved with the times like other industries so you kind of hit a brick wall sometimes with um, you know trying to do things in a different way maybe but I've had to learn all that on the fly as well, um, which has been an amazing experience, an amazing learning curve for me. And I think it all came at a really good time in my career where I was getting a bit sort of bored of doing, you know, sort of commercial graphic design. And it has been the perfect thing for me to keep me energised with graphic design and, you know, getting to design books on video games is, you know, the ultimate job, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> was there a, a a particular thing that triggered your transition to um, doing this as your job? So, so leaving your day job and doing Bitmap as full time enterprise. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. It was. Re- I I sort of fought against it for such a long time because I've I've always been very very. Uh, don't know what the right word is. Maybe sort of concerned around or cautious around making bitmap books my job because i think there's a danger when your hobby becomes a job it obviously feels like a job and Mm. i would never want to be in a position where i'm churning out books because it's a job that's not why i created bitmap books and not what i would never want to be in that position um so the, the the transition to leaving my job was actually happened. It it felt very natural. I'd been at the agency for ten years, and they were also going through a transition period. So it was kind of like a mutual thing that I was going to go on and do my own thing, and they would do their own thing. So it didn't feel like a massive deal at the time because I substituted a lot of the full time graphic design work I was doing for freelance, which I actually still do to this day because I think it's really important for me personally that I do carry on doing commercial graphic design as well as bitmap books to keep my toe in the water Mm. Uh, also you know still have relationships with design agencies and designers and current trends that I don't just sit in front of the computer all day designing computer game books because I think it makes me a better designer to have a more rounded sort of approach so 
yeah, sort of five years on, I'm still fighting against it. And I'm still, I'm probably 25% freelance and graphic design and 75% bitmap books. So not quite full time on bitmap books yet, but I think in a couple of years time, if things carry on going like they are, I think ultimately, I think that's, that's where I'll end up being. Yeah. I imagine that in the in the early days, um, you you didn't really have a process for like choosing books to cover and stuff. You'd just do whatever interests you. But in the years since, have you developed um, any sort of process for deciding what topics that you want to do new books on, or what authors you'd like to bring in to work with? I think I've just sort of. As you say at the beginning, it was really around my interests. So Commodore 64 and the Commodore Amiga were my two my two loves. And after that, it was a case of I created like a series of books. So the main consideration, I guess, was around, you know, at that stage, I had to start thinking about potential market and, you know, how well a book would sell because there's no point in me creating a book on something really random that I would love if no one's going to buy it. So <laughs> there's obviously a level of commercial decision in there as well. Well, no, I mean, that's obviously a, a huge consideration. And that really is a big part of choosing to work with authors. So to give you an example, around about a year, a year and a half into Bitmap Books, I obviously had published my own books at the time and I decided that it would be great to approach people who had, who had, who were in the process of or had already written or designed books and publish them through bitmap books. And the decision really about who to approach was whether there'd been a book on that particular computer or subject before. And if there hadn't, and uh, you know, using my experience, I felt that there'd be a market for it and we'd sort of go for it in that sense. Um, so a good example of that would be when I published Super Famicom, the box art collection. We, we had, at the time, we hadn't done any books on anything Nintendo related. And I approached Stuart Brett about publishing his Super Famicom box art book, which, it, which he originally had on Kickstarter but he pulled the plug because of various um, reasons. And I said that I could help him get it published. And I think that was a real turning point because it, it really helped grow the amount of books that we could publish because I then had this sort of this model in place, I guess, working with, with authors to publish their books. And I think it's really sort of given our range of books, a real sort of variety. Um, But to answer your question, it is very, tactical i guess in the sense of you know it's as it's as simple as you know there 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 wasn't a book on point and click adventure games and i thought there was a gap in the market to do one and so 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 that's what we did and you know it's so it's just identifying where there's a gap and then trying to plug that gap mm. um, and there's been examples where you know there are books that i would love to do but there's already been so many on 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 them that it would just feel like you know you're just you're sort of covering old ground i guess and i think for me 
that feels quite uninspiring. Uh, I think I really love doing books on subjects that have never been covered before or been attempted before. So like the, the Metal Slug book we did with SNK, that was a huge deal because no one had ever documented a game like that in that way. And it was a huge undertaking, but it was a real buzz to produce that. And it feels like that was a real example of uh, like not 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 game preservation, but like preserving the history. Mm. Um, because that, as I said, that had never been done before, and now that is in book form. The, the the whole creation of Metal Slug and the interviews with the developers that we got in Japan. So that's a huge. That's a huge buzz, I think, to to do something like that for the first ever time and to have it historically. It feels historically important, I think. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's that's a really cool thing. Yeah, I I can definitely relate to that. And I've I've pretty much spent my career as a as a writer trying to focus on stories that other people aren't doing. And as, as a free, mm. as a freelancer for many years, that was sort of my niche. I would find stories that no one else is is digging into and I'd be the one who who does it for the first time or who takes something that's only been covered at a really shallow level and goes actually deep on it. And then yeah. of course I've got my books now where like the secret history of Mac gaming and I had a really big uphill battle convincing the world that there was an audience for a book like that. I would talk mm. to people and they'd say, Oh, I think maybe you'd have a maximum 500 sales the whole life of this book and they just nobody understood that there's a captive market there's a whole lot of people who like me grew up with Macs and they played games on those and some of those games were really good and the Mac it may not have a reputation as a gaming platform but it had a lot of really cool games it had a lot of innovation on it and I got to be the first person who sort of uncovered that incredible world and that community. That was super exciting. Exactly. And also, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. And also with the Mac, what one of the things that would have interested me in that as well is the fact that you knew there was a cool story to tell. Mm. Um, Cause you know, I've, I've read Steve Jobs books as well. And I, I I know about the creation of the Mac and the whole story around it. And it's a great story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so it was a, it very, very similar with Metal Slug. I knew there was a story to be told and it was just a case of telling it in book form. Hmm. And But then um, a lot of your other books are more graphics-led, the, the, the visual compendium series that you have, for instance, or the box art um, books that you've now started to do as well. So what is it that you find especially interesting about sort of digging into this uh, visual history of games? There's a couple of couple of reasons why I went in that direction. The first one is because I'm a graphic designer, I'm a visual person, I'm creative, so I think naturally I'm always going to be drawn to the visual side of things and that all spawns from being a kid and I used to be obsessed with Commodore 64 graphics, um, obviously, which, you know, to a, with fresh eyes nowadays, if you don't know anything about the Commodore 64, they look very primitive. But back then, 
you know, it was so magical to me seeing these little coloured squares or pixels making these pictures. And I just felt it was the most amazing thing in the world. And I've kind of carried that on through through my life, really, in, in games. Always been drawn to very visual games. And when I was originally conceptualising Commodore 64, a visual compendium, I think I settled on focusing heavily on visuals because for me they're the most powerful thing to evoke nostalgia Mm. and although words can as well I think a picture is just like wow you know sometimes it can just uh I mean it has doesn't make me cry but I've had people before saying they've just opened a page and it's made them cry because it's just transported them back to a time where maybe it was a happy memory or a sad memory but it's Pictures are just so powerful. And that was really, really the main reason, I guess. And also it's because a couple of the other publishers out there at the time were maybe more focusing on text-heavy books. So I felt like it was a good differentiator for bitmap books to be more on the sort of the visual side of things. Uh, That kind of has evolved over the years because I think in hindsight, the first book we ever did was a little bit too visual. And some of the feedback was that it was just like a, uh, we used to get, it used to get called like a picture book, <laughs> which used to really annoy me because, you know, I spent months and months and months designing that. And it's not just a collection of screenshots. Well, it is in its, in its nature, but obviously, as you know, Richard, there's a lot of work that goes into selecting screenshots and taking mm. the screenshots and all that sort of stuff. So I kind of got a bit, I, I took that feedback on board and the Amiga book had more text, more written features to kind of address that, that criticism, I guess. And I think throughout all the books we've done, there's, they're always, bar one or two, they're very, very visual. But I always try and have, even if they are text heavy, I always try and have a visual aspect to them. So so that they're, they're, they're not just text i guess so there's that sort of thread running through and it's having that sort of style guide i guess for our books has kind of meant that when we're been um pitched books to publish or looking for books to publish it gives you a really good sort of like guideline to what would be appropriate for to fit into the to the range and i think that's really important to for me to be sort of known for a certain type of book to mm. sort of for, to, to differentiate from the other publishers out there. Yeah. And I, I guess it would be really great for you as a brand recognition thing, if there can come a point where someone can uh, see a book open uh, on, on some random page and they look at it and they go, that's going to be a bitmap book because they recognize your design style. Yeah, well, we actually had that recently, funny enough, a little f- funny story about that in that someone produced a book recently and they 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 openly said to me because they, they offered it to be published through us in, and, and which, which I had to decline just because it wasn't quite right. But they, they openly said that they were sort of very inspired by bitmap books and that they were going to, you know, be inspired by the, the look of the books. And they've since published this this title, and I've had emails from people saying, "Oh, I really like your new book. 
And so it kind of like, so I have to sort of say, I oh, know that's not ours, but I think that does validate your point around, I think we are known for a certain design style, I guess, hmm. which, which isn't a bad thing. Um, so yeah, I think people sometimes look at things and assume that we've done it when maybe we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and now, so something I find really interesting about um, this emphasis on the visuals that, that you have in your books is um, that like, so traditionally in games history, we think about how graphics have evolved over time, but we tend to do it on a generational level. Like we look at from one console generation to the next or from early computers to um, 16-bit computers to modern computers. And we, when we look like that, we just sort of get these vague jumps in graphical fidelity and we, have, we just pick out a handful of games that are representative of an entire generation. But you're focusing on individual platforms, which means you get to look at more of the that full breadth of of weird things that were going on and the experimentation with different graphical styles and the evolution of graphics over time. Like you're a Commodore 64 fan, you know how the early days of the Commodore 64 compared to the the, the later years, there were a lot of different graphical techniques that were in use. Yeah. So I'd just be interested in your thoughts on what we can learn from taking these deeper dives into the visual histories. Yeah, so when when I originally came up with the idea for the visual compendiums, I was very firm on that I wanted them to be in chronological order. And the main reason for that is exactly what you just said. I wanted to show the evolution of the of the of the visuals over time and which i find really really fascinating so i think on the commodore 64 you could there's obviously a a big jump uh but ultimately they were still plotting pixels with 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 a joystick it was there was so i think the thing i love about the commodore 64 in particular is there was just so much craft involved because you had to really think about all these little tiny rectangles colored rectangles and where they were going to go almost like little lego blocks and you obviously had limitations as well around certain amounts of colors and all that sort of stuff and i just it just blows my mind it really does how they managed to create these images and i think they they really were artists and i think you know i think the best commodore 64 pixel artists are actual the ones that are have had art training and yeah i just find it so so impressive and i think on the amiga as well i find i love i love amiga art as well but i think when you started getting into being able to sort of scan actual artwork and put it into sort of deluxe paint and stuff like that i think for me it it lost some of the the craft around Mm -hmm. pixel art and although I still like, for example, Monkey Island Two, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are, um, you know, obviously really familiar with, when I was doing the point and click book, that was a huge transition because you know these artists could paint backgrounds, scan mm. them in, and then tidy them up in the computer rather than having to plot each pixel at a time. 
And although I really, you know, respect their work, for me, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a real purist when it comes to the sort of the pixel art and the restrictions they have, they had, I think really brought out creativity. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Maybe I've answered a different question there, Richard, but... <laughs> oh, that's fine. And yeah, for, for me, it's like looking at the some stuff on the black and white Max was uh, you oh, had, beautiful. You had people like um, Mark Pierce, who was a uh, he was an immensely talented digital artist. So he had been using computers since he was a teenager to make art, and then when you, when he got hold of Mac Paint, the things that he could do were just staggering. And, and you've got to remember that uh, he's doing all that with a mouse and these yeah. are like 1980s mice, so it's not like the laser mice of today. It, it felt like you're holding like a matchbox or a carton of cigarettes or something in your hand. They get all gunked up as well on the ball inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet he made this beautiful black and white pixel art that you could blow up in a poster and put it on your wall and people would think it's some amazing painting. Because he's considered where each pixel is going to go so much, hasn't he? Mm. He's really thought about it and it's a real art to that. And I bet, I think there's also an element of, and I've had experience of this recently, that where, you know, the the more restrictive you are on colour and on the amount of pixels and resolution, almost the harder it is because you really, you know, you really have to use your craft to, as I said, sort of really think about where each pixel's going to go. Because I don't know if you know, but we, I, I, I recently worked on a set of postage stamps for the Royal Mail. Oh, I, I know the series. I didn't know you worked on it. That's cool. Yeah, so that was a huge, huge achievement, really. So I got to uh, a friend of mine who runs a design agency is. Uh, one of their clients is the Royal Mail and they often get invited to do sort of like special sets of stamps and they wanted to do a video game set celebrating British video games. So um, I, me or, or Bitmap Books was sort of invited to sort of co-design the set and sort of, you know, act as like a consultant because obviously we've got a lot of knowledge around different games and stuff and how to take screenshots and all that sort of stuff. and that was just an amazing project. But the, the reason I mention it is because you'd think that designing a, something like a stamp would be really easy because it's just, because <laughs> it's small, but it's complete opposite. And it goes back to your point around, you know, you've, it's just every single decision is just, it's just, it needs so much thought going into it. And yeah, I, I, I really, really love that sort of side of things. And, you know, looking at, that and just knowing how much work has gone into some of the pixel art is is really really incredible. Mm-hmm. And now, so you you've mentioned screenshots a few times, and and we both know how hard it is to to capture great screenshots for books. But can you talk a bit about what you look for when you're you're capturing your screenshots and how you go about? Um, trying to to highlight these games and and how you then uh, go selecting your just a few screenshots or sometimes even just one screenshot out of the whole collection you've captured to represent a game in your book 
Yeah, I think it's really, really, really hard, as you know. With If I maybe give the example of Visual Compendium books, because they invariably are just one image per game, I think some some games take about two minutes <laughs> because it's maybe obvious what the image should be or the image comes into my head because it's very, very hard, isn't it, to sum up a video game in one image, but I think some games lend themselves to being a single screen hmm. more more than others. I think on top of that, you've also got the layout of the book and you've got the spine and you've got the page numbers and also you've got an area where you're going to want to add text. So that adds another sort of layer of complexity to it. But mo- most of the time, it's just a case of trying to select an image that I think sums up sums up the game really well. So if everyone, for example, if everyone knows it as a really colourful game with lots of um, things happening on screen at once and, you know, really beautiful backgrounds, for example, then it's trying to find an image that encapsulates all of those things. But then also that image has got to have a space to add some text and it's got to not have all the action in the middle of the screenshots. It would get lost in the spine. Um, so some are very, very challenging. It's it's easier, I'd say, on the older systems. So, for example, on the Commodore 64, or, or the Amiga to, to, to a certain extent, or like the NES, if, if um, you had the perfect screenshot, but the character was right in the middle, you were like, oh, you know, that's really annoying because he's going to get lost in the spine. You can move the sprite in Photoshop. You know, so there's a certain level of manipulation you can do. <laughs> um, and I've certainly had to do Frankenstein jobs on screenshots before where I've had to create an area to add some text. So I've maybe I've moved a cloud. And obviously, you know, you don't want to take too many liberties with screenshots because you don't want to change the change the original work. But I think moving the odd cloud and adding a few bullets in here and there just to really um create the perfect composition is is something I really enjoy doing. And it's a real sense of satisfaction when you get that perfect screenshot. And as I said earlier, I think sometimes you do it and you just put the screenshot in and it works and it's like, wow, that took like two minutes. But sometimes they can take hours and hours to get them right and it's uh yeah it it, it is a challenge but i think it's a really rewarding part of the process for me Hmm. and is it something where you you do a lot of experimentation and just try this screenshot in there see how it looks or how about this one and and then you keep trying until you're you're really happy with what you've got basically yes yeah so have a selection of sort of potentials and just look at each one and just hope that one of them is 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 right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe because I'm just so familiar with the sort of the design style of of my books, but I can very quickly know when a screenshot is going to work or not. So I think I'm probably just just from my experience, I can sort of do that quite quickly. Hmm. But as I said, it sometimes it is a complete nightmare to get. So some games just don't look that great in screenshots you know they might be really iconic but they just don't necessarily work that well in a book Hmm. Um, so those ones are always challenging but there are tricks you can do like in some games where it's just really not happening you could have like four smaller images 
or something. It's like you sort of get out of jail if um, you can't find one screenshot. There are certain ways, certain ways around it. And there are there are a lot of games, and I, I'm sure you would have found this um, on the Amiga book. There's a, a from the Amiga games I've played that there are a lot of games that uh, they look incredible when they're moving, but then once you actually capture a static image from it they just they look boring yeah it is very hard it is very hard i think yeah i think in those circumstances in in the earlier visual compendium books i used to use quite a lot of loading screens because i think loading screens are a are obviously a static thing that i think most people remember especially from the commodore 64 days of those people who used to run games off of tapes that we all used to have to stare at those loading screens. So <laughs> they are, that's always a good way, I think, if maybe the in-game image isn't working that well, then a loading screen's always a good alternative. Mm. But yeah, you are right. Some games just don't maybe capture as well as, as they do when they're moving, but it's kind of like not a lot you can do about that, really. I think you've just got to do the best job, best job you can in that sort of circumstance. Hmm. And th- there's this other thing that uh, I love about your books, the little details that you that you put in to the design. Like you choose different ink and paper types for different books, right? Yeah, so that's something that I've always wanted to make a feature of bitmap books. And so I've always been interested in generally. And it's actually been one of the most fun aspects of bitmap books because when, when doing commercial graphic design, it's always around budget. So, you know, you might be doing a brochure for a client and you want to have a gold logo on the front and the client always says no, because it costs an extra certain amount of money. And it's always, you know, comes down to cost and you're always trying to sort of say to the clients, look, you know, it's worth the money because it will make it feel more premium or, you know, and all this trying to communicate the benefits, but, it falls on deaf ears um, most of the time. So really when I was doing doing the books, but, you know, I was my own boss. So if there was budget, then I could add little flourishes like ribbons and special links. And there was no one to tell me I couldn't do it. A massive game changer though, which is I think is important to mention is the first couple of books were printed in the UK and Sadly, when the business started to grow, that just became completely unviable because when I wanted to add things like slip cases, dust jackets, and things that traditionally are done by hand at a printers in the UK, they add a lot of cost and the books very quickly start becoming unviable to produce here. So we started producing the books in the Far East, which was a massive, I wouldn't say it was a gamble, but it was something that I didn't know a lot about. And I think I was worried because a lot of people associate the Far East with poor quality, um, which couldn't be further from the truth because when we started working with the printer we use, I was just blown away by the quality of the books. And it feels really strange thing to say, but because the printers in the UK aren't book printers, the books never really felt like books to me. But when when the books came back from the Far East, they just felt like more solid and they just felt like a book, 
which might sound strange, but it, it kind of felt like everything had gone up a notch. And because it's cheaper to print over there, I mean, to be honest, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. We could add inks, <laughs> you can add this, you can add that. And yeah, we've done books. Well, we've done a book with electronics in the front cover that played sounds when you pressed it. And I love the fact that there's all this sort of innovation available. And if there's a market for the book and there's budget, then we can do these things. And I love pushing the pushing the envelope and doing things that no one's done before. Um, that really excites me. Hmm. So... Uh... Continuing on on the design thread, we've talked about some specific details of designing the books. Can you um, talk um, my listeners through uh, the the process from like start to finish of making a book? Because it takes a long time and a huge amount of work uh, that people don't necessarily realise just how much is involved. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot. There is a lot involved. I think I was trying to think how to start. How to start answering this? I think the main thing for me is that I always have is 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 a plan at the start and a concept of what you want the book to be. And I think once you got, once you know what you want it to be, then that makes a lot of the decisions a lot easier. So, for an example, in, say, a visual compendium book, you know that it's all about the games, basically. So one of the first things to do would be to draw up, like, a pagination, which is, like, it's just, like, an industry term for, like, a page plan of the book. And that's one of the first things that we do. So that could be drawn out on paper or on the computer and literally just plot what games and what content is going on, what pages. And that will also help you determine the page count for the book, like how many pages you're going to need. And that's really the raw sort of skeleton of the book. And then once you've got that in place, then it's a case of creating the actual content. So what I would do typically is I do I do all the graphic design for the books. So I would start, I would take that pagination and I would start creating it on the computer. And I'm not a writer, so any text, I would put placeholder Latin text and I would engage with a writer of choice for that particular book. So that would often be someone who who specialises in so if it was a Super Nintendo book, for example, it would be obviously a journalist or a writer that has got a lot of experience in that system that they can naturally write about it. So they would, so the writing would be happening concurrently with the design. And then as, as and when the writing is available, it would then be sent to me and then I would plug it into the design. And then also behind the scenes, there, there could be people helping me out, taking screenshots creating pixel art for the dividers and it's it's this massive sort of it's it's a massive part of what i do i think it's like project management it's spinning all these plates all the time making sure everyone's on schedule to deliver what they're supposed to be delivering and then what usually happens is 
while I'm busy with the design, that'll finish and then everyone will just give everything to me at once. And then I'll put all the text in, put all the imagery in. And then once it's all, once everything's in place, then there'll be a couple of steps. One, one of them would be usually to share the book with a few trusted people. So that could be like someone who's like an expert in that particular field. I would reach out and engage with them and say, hey, I'm producing this book. Would you like to have an early look? You know, could you help me give it a read? Is it, you know, have I missed anything? Is it, as a fan, is it hitting the right notes? And I think that's a really, really important stage to do. And then it would, once that's, once everything's sort of locked down, then it would go through a, as you know, Richard, like a, you know, like, like a, like a sub-editing mm. stage on the text and then proofreading. And then once it's all proofread and everything, then it would be a case of preparing it for print. So I probably mi- mi- mixed, I probably missed out quite a few steps there, but I think to, to sort of reiterate, I think the main thing really is to have a concept and a plan at the start and then everything else really just sort of feeds off that. I think, you know, I, c- I can't imagine doing a book without a plan because you'd have no way of knowing whether a, dis- a certain decision is the right decision because you've got nothing to sort of base it against. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I guess some things you, that depending on the book, you might add in also um, additional levels of editing. If it's, if it's a text heavy book, then you go through like a developmental edit uh, is one of the industry terms, which can be a very uh, involved process. Uh, it can take a few months, sometimes even longer uh, yeah, I would say the text side of the books is without a doubt the most challenging part for me because it's not my natural area of expertise. So I do rely a lot on other people for that side of things. And man, I just, this, 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 this thing about text, it's like no matter how much you read, you check, you proof, when you get that book back, there's always a typo in it. And it just... <laughs> It, uh, it's just one of those things I think that you just sort of have to accept but no matter how hard you try something always slips through and there's always someone on Twitter that points it out you know as soon as they see it you know this glaring error you've made and I, I find it really hard to um, it kind of taints taints a project for me sometimes when, I, when, when there's like an error in it I kind of obsess over that and it sort of annoys it annoys me, and I fight, I struggle to see the bigger picture, and so I'm always sort of striving for perfection. Mm. Really, um, you know, I, I would never say I produce the perfect book, but I think that's something I do need to get better at. Is to um, obviously, you know, keep trying to make them perfect, but to learn to enjoy them more. I think once they're published, because sometimes, as, as I said, I do zone in on things that I think no one else would ever notice but I do it's kind of a source of frustration (laughs) (laughs) I I I can relate to it I've had plenty of um, (laughs) like articles published that I can't access to fix what to me is a really obvious error in there Um, there's a word missing or uh, some sentence is just really awkward to read and I 
feel bad and it's like it's an article that otherwise i would be hey look at this amazing thing i wrote five years ago it still holds up so beautifully but i get fixated on that little detail that yeah (laughs) as you say that little one thing that's not perfect and you just can't get past it and the the thing with text that uh, i didn't realize um really appreciate until i started getting involved with books is the amount of work that goes into um, the the typesetting, so massaging the positions of the the words on the page so that they line up nicely, and so there's no um, there's there's no valleys and there's uh, no the uh, orphaned orphaned words yeah. at, at the bottom of a line uh, of a paragraph and things. You know, they, we've got all these industry terms. Uh, there's just so much that you got to do and it takes so long to get those little details right yeah yeah it is a it is a huge challenge i think you can it's it's again something that i've always wanted my books to be is typographically very strong and i think you can tell when a book has been designed by like a non-graphic design like a non-professional graphic designer because there's maybe not as much care given to the text and it might look a little bit like not as lined up as it probably should be but that's something that I've always really wanted to make as as good as it possibly can be but you're right it is a it is a huge challenge especially when you get an amend from a proofreader and you know it like you lose a line or something and it completely screws up everything and then you have to start like playing around with it. it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle Mm. But it's all part of the. It's all part of the. the, the I was going to say fun, or part of the challenge. <laughs> it can be fun. It's a. It's a puzzle. Yeah, it, it is. It, yeah, it, it is. It is fun when you've solved the puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would still remember um, doing Secret History of Mac Gaming, getting the getting the notes back from the designer saying, uh, "Can you find a way to shorten this paragraph?" that is only itself like four lines, can you find a way to cut half a line out of it or one and a half lines out of it or something? <laughs> Just find some way to to change the words here <laughs> because I, I need it to fit inside. Yeah. I need it to fit inside this space or otherwise we've screwed up the whole structure of the book and something is overflowing. Yeah. Now, so uh, out of curiosity, um, what, have been your best-selling books I, i'm sure that they're not necessarily the ones you expected would be the best-selling yeah when i first started doing this someone who'd run a publishing company before gave me <laughs> words of wisdom they said not every book will be a bestseller and at the time i kind of it kind of sounds really obvious i suppose but you know i wasn't expecting every book i do to sell instantly but you know, the thought of producing a book that underachieved was like something that hadn't happened. And I was like, wow, you know, you know, I would never let that happen sort of thing. But yeah, I think I've I've had a couple of books that haven't sold as well as I thought they would. And I just can't work out why, because the, 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 you know, the, 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 the landscape seems to be right for them to achieve and they just don't do, I mean, they still do well, but they don't do as well as I thought they would, or that they don't create as much of a buzz or excitement as, as I thought they would. But then on the flip side, 
to that, there have been books that I've had moderate expectations of and have just gone crazy. I think an example of that would probably be the CRPG book, Mm. which is a book that we published a couple of years ago. So CRPGs is, is an area of gaming that I'm not massively familiar with, but obviously the author Philippe is, you know, like a guru in that sort of, in, in those sorts of games. And he produced this amazing book and I was quite cautious around how many we initially printed because I was just a little bit concerned that was there going to be a market for this book? And that is, you know, that was one example where you sort of do a, you print some books and then you have to do a reprint straight away. (laughs) <laughs> which because the demand is just incredible and which is which is great but it's also not great because you you're having to place a reprint and the unit cost for the books is really high and so that's kind of like a bit frustrating when that happens but yeah we've the the point and click book so the art of point and click adventure games has been our best-selling book probably probably by quite a way actually it's one that every time I reprint, I have to do another reprint. <laughs> um, and the most recent reprint we did had sold out before they even landed, the books even landed, they'd all sold out. So the listeners might be thinking, why didn't you print more if you knew it's going to be so popular? So you don't have to do lots of little reprints. But I think it's so hard to make a judgment on print numbers and it's something that I've never um I've always struggled with I suppose because I'm naturally quite a cautious person so I was never going to print 10,000 you know and think that I'm going to sell them all because I would be worried about having lots of stock sitting in a warehouse somewhere so my head always goes to printing less books airing on the side of caution and then just doing reprints which from a business point of view if you were just trying to make lots of money isn't the smartest thing to do but running a sustainable business sensibly it's kind of like the right thing to do and also this year as well with everything's going on with coronavirus it adds another layer of uncertainty i guess so being cautious i think is kind of like the right way to go but there have been times where i wish i'd been a bit braver with some books because it would have saved a lot of hassle and getting reprints done. So yeah, it's, it's so, so difficult. Mm. Yeah. Has COVID uh, had much of an impact on your business? It, it hasn't up until now, interestingly. So when it first, when it first happened, if that's the right phrase, it, I was very, very worried because as like most people, I didn't know, we didn't know what was going to happen. Did we? Um, and but I think with the sort of the lockdowns back in the start of the year, luckily for people like myself that have online businesses, you know, we were pretty okay because people were at home, people were buying things to fill their time and people had time for online shopping. So sales, sales were pretty good. We didn't notice a, like a drop off. So that was a, that was a huge relief. I think the, the negative aspects of COVID are starting to rear their head at the moment with shipping delays around Christmas. So in the UK ports at the moment, there's quite a few delays happening because there's a lot of, a lot of containers of um, PPE, 
in like masks and gowns and stuff that hospitals use. So there's creating quite a lot of backlog going on. So frustratingly, it hasn't really affected the business until now. And I'm hoping it's just sort of like a bit of a, a blip. Just because obviously the time of year, it being Christmas, it's just like extra shipping going on. But yeah, I think we have been pre- overall pretty lucky to not be that affected. And also I haven't got staff or anything, so there's been no issues around all that sort of side of things. So I think running a business in the way that I do, quite small and sensibly and sustainably, has kind of really paid dividends this year. Mm. Yeah, and it's you don't have to worry about uh, empty office space when you don't have a, a an actual office space. Yeah, well, I do actually have... A, I don't have an office, but I do rent a desk from a within a design studio in town. So there was... There was a slight, I mean, there, there, there was an empty desk sitting there, but it it's, wasn't a huge amount of money lost on that. I think the biggest challenge has been working from home day to day with children around and stuff is, isn't is easy. Um, and unfortunately, I haven't got a, like a separate office in the house. So I'm very much sort of working in, in our family home, which brings its own challenges for those people who've got children. I'm sure they'll, sure they'll relate to. Yeah, it's hard enough for me uh, with a, an extremely loud cat getting interrupted all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard all the stories about how kids can get in the way, and we've all seen the the hilarious story, hilarious occurrences of um, kids popping onto the screen when their their mum or dad is on national TV doing an interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you uh, have a, a new book coming soon that uh, it's up for pre-order at the moment, the, the Game Boy Box Art Collection. Um, what would you like uh, people to know about that? So this this book is it's kind of like a follow-up to one of our earlier books, which is called Super Famicom, the Box Art Collection by Stuart Brett. So this this original book was very much a celebration of Japanese Super Famicom box art. Um, Stuart was a massive um, believer in that the, the Japanese box art for that system was far superior because it didn't have to have all the logos and all the bars around it. You know, as you know, Richard, the beautiful Japanese boxes with the full bleed illustrations mm. and they were just stunning. And that was really the concept for that book. It was showcasing, showcasing the artwork, and each box had a had a write up talking about the artwork and the game. The book was really, really well received, and I've constantly been asked over the years if we're going to be doing other box art books, and I've just been waiting really for the right opportunity to to, to do another one. And the opportunity came up a couple of years ago where. I was approached by a Game Boy collector who said, hey, why haven't you got a Game Boy box art book? And kind of made me think, well, yeah, that'd be, wouldn't that be great? And he really helped me to find a collector or collectors to work with within the book that had obviously all, a, a, a lot of the Japanese games to hand that we could photograph. So the concept for the book was to build on Super Famicom, the box art collection, um, but improve it 
as well where possible. So similar to that book, um, within Game Boy, the box art collection, you have an, um, a beautiful photograph of the game box with a write-up of that game. But this time we've also included screenshots of the games, which was a criticism from the from the Super Famicom book that you know you're showing these sometimes obscure Japanese games, and it'd be really nice to see what they actually looked like in screenshot form as well. So that's something that we've included within the Game Boy book, and also we op- after lots and lots of consideration, I decided to open it up to different regions as well. Because I think unlike the Super Famicom or the Super Nintendo, I think Western Game Boy box art wasn't wasn't ugly. You know, you had the silver bar down the left-hand side, but you still had some really nice box art, and I think it's really fondly remembered. So we wanted to also include some of the Western artworks as well as the Eastern stuff. And I think it just makes the book feel more complete I guess like a really nice overview of the Game Boy and it also includes some written features at the start so we've got like a a feature on the history of the Game Boy and then we've got an interview with um, collectors in there but the actual book is 350 pages long it includes uh, around about 350 game boxes which have all been professionally photographed um, loads of variation, all the sort of games you'd expect to see, like Super Mario Land and Zelda, and also some more obscure Japanese stuff that maybe people haven't heard of. And yeah, it's been a really challenging book to put together to to put together because may, mainly mainly because of the photography and the the level of writing needed. But it's I'm really really excited about it, and we've even produced a a couple of special editions of the book which come in like an oversized box, like a collector's box. And we commissioned Will Overton to illustrate the cover of the box. Um, and for those who don't know, Will used to used to do the cover artworks for a magazine called Superplay, which is a which is a UK Super Nintendo magazine. And he also worked at Rare. Um, as a as an artist and he's got this really lovely style and he's produced this art for the front of, of, of the box and we've got a, a gold edition and a silver edition of the of, of, of the collector's editions which is sort of like a bit of a nod to the to the game to the Pokemon sort of coloured editions on the Game Boy and yeah yeah really in that sort of phase at the moment where it's waiting to be uh, waiting for the books to arrive into the UK to be sent out to people who pre-order. So a mixture of excitement and uh, the usual sort of nervousness around launching <laughs> a book. But it's it's been an incredible amount of work and it's, it's I'm massively proud of it. And I think it I think I'm very confident that fans of the Game Boy are really gonna really gonna enjoy it. And it's gonna, you know, it's it doesn't just regurgitate information that's already out there. It does. It it, it shows game boxes that, um, to my knowledge, aren't documented. Certainly not in in the sort of the resolution that we've got them. And we've also translated uh, a lot of the Japanese 
game names um, in, in, into English professionally. So t- to my knowledge as well, there's lots of inconsistencies online around game translations and to have it done professionally and sort of not verified, but, you know, sort of like checked the level we have, I think is quite a unique thing. And again, I think it goes back to that historical aspect that I like that, that that task has been done and it feels like a good thing for the, for the historical context of the Game Boy. Mm, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, best of luck with that one. Um, do you, do you have plans beyond that? I mean, what, what can we expect from Bitmap in, in the future? And what do you hope we might see from Bitmap in the future? I think, I think I'd like to carry on, carry on the same, but, constantly try and do new things i suppose i think the 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 kind of the formula that that we have for the books at the moment i'm really really happy with and i think everyone seems really happy with the books we're producing i think the one thing i want to carry on doing is innovating and trying different things i think that's definitely the way that i want to carry on with bitmap books and as far as what titles are coming up i think it's looking for opportunities for books that I think would fit really well into the range. So as and when they sort of come along, trying to bring those into the portfolio. Uh, The next book after the Game Boy one is kind of like an unofficial follow-up to the CRPG book. So that's going to be on Japanese role-playing games. (laughs) And that's 600 plus pages um, book, uh, 180,000 words in that book and that's been a yeah that's been um it's an absolute monster so that uh that's that's coming out in april next year and i think if fans of that genre of game are really gonna uh, are really gonna love love what we've done with that and then after that next year we, we we're gonna start looking at our next visual compendium so I very much want to cover um, IBM PC within the Visual Compendium range, which I think would be really cool to do. And then we've not actually announced this yet. Um, I don't see any reason why why I can't mention it. But um, towards the end of next year, we're going to be producing a King of Fighters book with SNK. So that's going to be very much like the Metal Slug, the Ultimate History book but on the King of Fighters series of games. So that's something I've been in talks with them probably for about six to seven months and that's been sort of happening behind the scenes. But I think even more than Metal Slug, that's a really important book because whereas the the story of Metal Slug is kind of documented online, not necessarily accurately, but it is in places, there's literally nothing um, about the King of Fighters on the internet. So it's a real opportunity to tell the story and we've interviewed the original developers in Japanese and had it all translated and stuff. So I think, you know, anyone who's interested in game history, game preservation and, you know, King of Fighters or fighting games in general is going to is gonna love that one. So that's going to be a big release around about October next year. Mm. Oh. Oh, awesome! That's some some really cool stuff. Uh, I, I'm 
particularly looking forward to seeing what this uh, IBM PC one will look like because that was such a such a varied platform as you went through the the different graphical evolutions you know, from the the really ugly early CGA graphics to the quite beautiful stuff that that some developers would do in the in the later years. Yeah, you're right. It is a it is a it is a, a big breadth of big breadth of graphics. I think it's going to be a challenge. Certainly, selecting the games for that one because you've got so many to choose from. But it's uh, it's um, it's it's a pla- it's a system that I really really want to cover, and I think everyone is crying out for us to do a a, a Mega Drive book or or Genesis book as a follow up to our Mars System one, and this is something which we get asked about all the time, and we are really really trying to make it happen and it's very likely that it will be the visual compendium after the IBM PC one that that will happen. But I know, I appreciate that everyone's really looking forward to to us covering the Mega Drive. My thanks again to Sam Dyer for sharing his insights about the retro game book publishing business. If you'd like to learn more about Bitmap Books and perhaps buy a few of their products, you can head to bitmapbooks.co. UK. You can also follow them on Twitter at bitmap underscore books, on Facebook and Instagram at bitmap books, and on YouTube at Mr. Sid C64. You'll also find Sam on Twitter at Mr. Sid C64. I'll have links to all of these and much of the stuff we spoke about in this interview in the show notes. And as a reminder, this interview is part of a new series I'm running alongside the usual documentary and narrative style stuff. I've also run interviews with the individuals behind Schmapplations, the CRPG Addict, and the Obscuratory, as well as Kelsey Lewin from the Video Game History Foundation. And I have lots more planned for the future. If you have suggestions or requests for people you'd like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter using either handle uh, Life and Times VG or Mossasi, or you can email me on richard at lifeandtimes.games. And as always, remember that you can support my work through paypal.me slash or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. Stay tuned for the finale of season four in the first half of January and for many big things I have planned for 2021. I hope you're all having a great December, or whatever month it is when you're listening to this. My name is Richard Moss, and this was a Life and Times of Video Games interview extra. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya.